Good morning. It's great to be back here with you all. I read the gospel last night at St. Timothy's, the church plant here out of St. Paul's. And as I got to the end of the gospel, you all heard those words. I'll read them again. But here's what I did when I read them at St. Timothy's. And I, it, was a, it was a grave error. What I did was I got to where um, Jesus says, Don't you see that nothing enters a man from the outside that can make him unclean? For it is out of his stomach, or out of his heart, not out of his stomach. And then he goes on to say, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. And here's what I did. I said, For from within, out of men's and women's hearts come evil thoughts, adultery, greed, and so one by one, as I went through the list, I picked people out in the audience to kind of give it some impact. As I was folding up the gospel and walking back to the lectern, the Lord was like, every one of those people thinks that you're talking about them. So I'm not talking about anybody when I go down that list. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not Gary with his height and his eyes and his voice. That won't do any good. Awesome awesome story. There is a lot going on in this story, but the word defilement ought to be the word that we spend some time on this morning. What does it mean to be defiled? What does it mean to be defiled? Because as my title says, we are in fact defiled. We're defiled, but we're not dead. We're not dead. And I'll get to that point at the very, very end. You see, I think our eyes are our biggest problem. I was going to say something really punchy at the beginning of this, and I practice with my wife at home sometimes, my sermons, and the line I had about blindness, she said, don't say that. So I'm not going to say that, but, but blindness, I'm not going to say it the way I was going to say it, but you get the point. Our eyes are the problem. You see, it's our eyes that as we look into the mirror first thing in this morning as we were getting ready for church and doing our hair that lead us to believe, gosh, my hair just doesn't look very good. I wish my hair would do it the way the hairdresser does, or, or our, our clothes don't fit, or they're wrinkled and we don't have time to press them, and so we look in the mirror and we think, I just don't look as good as I'd like to going to church this morning. Or, you look pretty good, you come to church, and then you see Tyler, John, and I, and we're all wearing stoles. And you see us, and you look at yourself and go, I'm not as holy as those three, they got stoles. Or worse, John, Tyler, and I get here, and the bishop's here, and he's got a hat. And we look at the bishop and we're like, oh man, he's the holiest guy we know. Look how good he looks on the outside. Because we judge the outside. We all do. Our eyes see it and we judge it. Well-mannered children sitting there, we all go, oh, those have got to be good parents. Kids that are running around screaming, spilling stuff on the floor, what's wrong with those parents? Right? We do that. Or we drive here and we see these beautiful lawns and cars washed and we think, ah, that's a successful man. That's a successful woman. Look how good his yard and cars look. On the other hand, let somebody walk in with a tattoo. Let them walk in a little smelly. Stand behind them at the Harris Teeter while they use their food stamps to pay for their food. And we think, mm, there's, there's someone who's failed. There, there's someone who's failed in life. We all do it. We see it. We judge it. We do it. The Pharisees this morning are doing the same thing. The Pharisees this morning are doing the exact same things. This is the third time the Pharisees have come to tell Jesus what his disciples are doing wrong according to the law. We're only seven chapters into Mark. We're almost halfway through Mark. And the Pharisees show up again from Jerusalem to tell Jesus what the, what the disciples are doing wrong. You see, they're eating with unwashed hands. They're behaving in a way that allows the defilement that has come on to them 
to be spread throughout the community. And the community of Israel is not supposed to be defiled. But most importantly, the community of Israel is supposed to follow the law. We heard it in our Deuteronomy reading this morning. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy, it's the last book of the Pentateuch. It's Moses' swan song, as one of my professors used to say. It's the place in his life where he knows he's going to die. He's not going to get to the promised land. And so he's given them that last second speech before they go out onto the field or before they take the promised land. And he says, listen, folks, keep the law. He says this, too, if you heard it. Don't add to, don't add to it. Don't add to it. But keep the law. And people, nations, others will see you and flood and flock to you. Keep the law. And these laws, you see, had expanded since the time of Moses. And what we heard in our gospel was that Jesus' disciples were guilty of not keeping the oral tradition. So we started with Ten Commandments, these laws, that were designed to keep us in relationship with God. The purpose of the law was to keep us in relationship to God. So we started with these ten things that would keep us in relationship to God, and then this oral tradition began. And that's where the scribes come in. They spent hours sitting around debating, well, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? Is turning my light on? Is that work? Is borrowing my friend's whatever, walking across, is walking work? And so these scribes had begun to develop a, a greater system of the law. And so not washing your hands was something that the scribes had said after the giving of the Ten Commandments, which were there to keep us in relationship with God. They said, oh, wait a minute, they're breaking the law. They're breaking the law. And it was a huge deal. I can't stress it enough what a huge deal it was for the Jewish people. Um, just years before, there had been this war in, in Israel, and um, this king from Syria had come, and he grabbed four sons and a mother, and he said to the boys, he said, you're going to eat pork, because he knew the Jewish people, because of their laws, wouldn't eat anything that came from a cloven hoof. They wouldn't eat pork. And so one by one, he martyred those boys in front of their mother, while she cheered them on to martyrdom. She cheered them on. My boys aren't eating pork. They'd rather die than eat pork. That's how serious the law was to the Jews. It's how serious it was. And so Jesus, as a rabbi, walks onto the scene. They pull up and say, hey, you guys are doing it again. They're breaking the rules. They don't think Jesus is the Messiah. Not only do they not think he's the Messiah, they don't even think he's a good rabbi. I mean, he's flunking Rabbi 101. Really? You guys can't even keep the simple ones. Wash your hands. How hard is that? Your mom tells you every time you go to the bathroom, wash your hand. I mean, come on. It's not a hygienic washing. It's a ceremonial washing. But they can't keep the law. And so they attack Jesus. So this law that was designed to keep them in relationship with God or right in God's eyes, you see, had become this unachievable burden that was separating them from God, hence Jesus coming. And worst of all, it was starting to provide a religious competition, and it was doing the one thing that God intended it never to do. And that was the law was beginning to allow the Israelites to separate themselves from everybody. The law was intended to draw people to the people of Israel, and their laws that had grown and grown and grown were now separating them from the rest of the world. So what does Jesus do? Can you put up the, the line? I think it's verse um, 5 or, or verse 6 where Jesus gives them uh, the answer. Notice like he always does when they ask him, why don't your folks keep with the traditions? He doesn't, of course, answer the question. He never answers their questions. That had to be frustrating. Um, he goes straight to the Bible. Jesus goes straight to the Old Testament. And he, before he does anything, calls them hypocrites. And here's what hypocrite means. It refers to those who believe that the meticulous serving of God in outward things, 
the meticulous serving of God in outward things, overrules the blatant disobeying of God with interior things. Overrules the blatant disobeying of God with interior things. Jesus is saying, to quote one commentator, now listen to this, there is no greater religious peril than that of identifying religion with outward observance. There is no more common religious mistake than to identify goodness with certain so-called religious acts, church going, Bible reading, careful financial giving, even timetabled prayers do not make a man or a woman a good person. We believe that? It's hard to hear though, isn't it? It's hard to hear. We want to we want to cultivate good habits. I'm not saying don't do any of these things, but they they are not the thing that makes us good. Hear that. So later when his disciples ask him the question, he calls the crowd. We heard that. He calls the crowd together and he gives them that that upside down turning message that listen to me everybody, he says. It's not what comes into, um, into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. The disciples are standing there in verses 17 and 18, and they're stunned as much as the, the Pharisees and the scribes were. They're just as bewildered because they're following a rabbi who should be keeping the law, and here he is saying, essentially, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard or how often you rub the inside of that cup to clean it. It's not clean. It doesn't matter how long you take washing your hands, which way you point your fingers, what way the water runs off of them, how much soap or what kind of soap you use. It doesn't matter. The thing that's keeping them from being undefiled is their hearts. It's their hearts. He's addressing the heart of the law, and he's addressing the heart of the gospel. So in order to be, as David was quoted as being in the Old Testament, a man or a woman after God's own heart, we have to have our interiors changed. We, like the Pharisees, are too concerned with the exterior. We want to look good. Um, we we want to look good for others. And I know it's hard to hear. I know that's very hard to hear. So what do we do? What, what do we do about it once we realize this? You know, I believe most of us today in this room would say, oh, Gary, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Yet we're brought up short daily by the evil things that come up out of our hearts. So we, I believe, fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. We try to get the exterior looking good. We think maybe that'll impress God because for most of us, the exterior is a lot easier than the interior. I had a time in my life right after I got married where I spent 10 years being a good Christian man. I did, boy. I went to church. I wore a tie. Um, I kept my car clean. I was faithful to my wife. I paid my tithe. You, you name it, I did it. I did it. And I had this son that was born to us who was terminally ill. And I walked out of the intensive care unit at Medical University and I screamed at God. And it was born out of this sense. My anger for God was born out of this sense that I had followed the law. I had done everything right. I married my high school sweetheart. Never smoked pot. You guys should laugh. I mean, come on. Uh, I haven't. But I mean, anyway, so I'd done all these things right. I'd done all these things right. I was a good Christian man. Why was this happening? Why was this happening? God let me just stew in it. The redemptive part for that moment was I came back here and drove by a Bible study, and there's somebody sitting here, I can't look at him, and, and I came into the Bible study, a broken man, and these guys laid hands on me and prayed for me, and that began my repentance. That moment began my repentance, because what happens in that moment is one of two things. We can either stay angry at God and we can run that away and say, listen, I tried to follow your rules. It didn't work. You didn't reward me, so I'm out. Or we can turn to God 
with a heart that's being broken, and we can say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because when we don't do that, what we end up doing, and this is the death nail on our faith coffins, we try harder. We wake up in the morning, we go, oh, I yelled at the kids yesterday. Daggone it, I lied at work. Oh, I still got that gas money I was supposed to give that guy back. I'll give it to him. We, we, we create this list, and then we feel terrible about ourselves. So we try harder. We say, okay, I'm going to pray daily. I'm going to watch my mouth. I'm going to watch my mouth, or at least make sure my microphone's turned off. I'm going to... I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to read scripture every day. I'm going to, I'm going to, make it, I'm going to put an alarm on my phone to remind me to do these things, these good things um, that will get me right in God's eyes like the law was supposed to do. But for most of us, there's this war raging inside of us. Those things that we want to do, we don't do, and those things that we shouldn't do, we do do. And we fail over and over and over again. So here's the good news. A heart that is given over to Jesus still wrestles with those things. They're not evacuated out of your heart. The, the reality of arrogance, the reality of folly, slander, envy, deceit, it's all still there, but it begins to respond a different way to the defilement. It begins to notice it. This heart begins to notice it, and then its first reaction, its first nature is to begin to repent, is to ask for forgiveness and believe that Jesus can indeed make us new and holy, now only partially, because we're going to wake up the next day and do it again, but one day completely undefiled. You see, every alcoholic, every addicted person I've met in this last year um, that's being healed, every, every one of the alcoholics or addicted people that I've met that's being healed or that is walking in sobriety, they understand this, this core belief that, that in order to be restored to health, they have to completely give over their life, their out-of-control life to God. They have to give over their heart, their life to God in order to get healed. They realize they're helpless to their behavior. So I'm describing a behavior here, folks, that I do and I imagine the rest of us do. We do these things that we shouldn't do. We don't do the things we should do. We go to bed. We wake up. We're like, ah, failed again. Okay, I'll try harder. And we do it over and over and over again. It's a vicious cycle. It's not getting us any closer to God. It's not making us any holier. It's not doing anything. It's, it's futile. What we have to realize is the first reaction ought to be, ah, uh, oh, wait a minute. Jesus said there was something we could do about this that would have lasting effect. We can ask him to forgive us. We can sincerely ask him to forgive us. Because like the alcoholic, we're then becoming honest with ourselves. We're then becoming honest with ourselves. We know the symptoms won't stay at bay forever. They won't. And we start to realize that the way people see us doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. The further I go with Jesus, the more I'm attracted to those really broken people like Brad, who I told you about in a sermon previously, who stumbled into the AT&T store drunk. Um, Brad knew he was a mess, and Brad knew there was nothing that day he could do about it. Um, Brad wanted to be healed, he said. So those are the kind of people, I, I want to be around people, I, they don't have to outwardly smell or look like Brad all the time, but, um, th but they at least know that there's something wrong, and then they at least know that there is a, there is a, a way to be healed, and that is through Jesus. So we, we can't make our hearts holy enough. Our charitable actions apart from God are not worth a thing. They don't fix the problem. We can't do anything to bring our lives back to the place that we all long for, which is what the law was supposed to do, which is, of course, intimately connected to, to God. Jesus is the only one who can make us holy, and the only way it can be accomplished is through his death and resurrection. Through his death and resurrection. So, we are all defiled. The only way we can be undefiled is to accept and receive Christ. 
It's okay to admit it. It's actually the first step toward becoming undefiled. I'm helpless. I can't do it, Lord. I need you to do it. It's not through my hand washing. It's not through my job, my yard, my car, my children, my spouse, my friends, or how my kids are dressed. It's none of those things Jesus is saying. Jesus is essentially saying, forget it. You can wash your hands until the cows come home, and you won't wash off your defilement. We are defiled, but not Jesus. He is not defiled. He touches lepers. He touches lepers. He touches the blind. He touches the deaf. These people that the Pharisees and the scribes had set up as people who were either in a sinful life or their parents had done something sinful, so now these things had happened, and so you would never touch these people. Jesus does. He even touches the dead. We still have an aversion to touching dead people. Jesus touches the dead. He's not defiled. He'll never be defiled. Nothing defiles Jesus. And he also tells us the best news of all, that we can and will be just like him one day. We will be like him one day, just like him. So my thesis is, aren't we all tired of our metaphoric hand washing to get right in the eyes of God? Aren't we all just a little fed up with that feeling that, well, I guess that's just the way it is, so I'll try harder today. I'll use more soap. I'll put a rubber band around my wrist to remind me not to curse. I'll put a note on my phone to remind me to pray. I'll speak kindly to everybody I see as soon as I leave church. These are all great habits. Cultivate those habits. Cultivate those habits. But remember, those habits don't cure the problem. We are defiled. We need a radical cleansing, a blood cleansing that only Jesus Christ can offer. We must be washed by his blood in forgiveness. Amen. Thank you. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, undefiled, he's undefiled. How much more will this blood then cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death, those acts that come out of us, so that we may serve the living God? The author of Hebrews is saying the blood of Christ is the only thing that can fix this defiled heart. So as you can see, I've asked Bonnie to get up there. I want to sing a song. I'll sing the first line for you, but you all know it. Because it is nothing that is outside of us which defiles us. It's only those things that come from inside. But remember this. Only something from the outside can wash us clean. Only something from the outside can wash us clean, and that's Jesus.